Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's edition of From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. What a sporting weekend we have had. I suppose if you're a South African and uh, you want to be cruel <laughs> for Australia, they got hammered in the cricket. They got knocked out of the Rugby World Cup. But then let's not be nasty to them because it nearly was the same for my beloved Manchester United this weekend. So lots to talk about, and we'll start off with the Rugby World Cup and Australia. Their media has been pretty uh, harsh on them. Uh, Australia's media rude their side's cruelest exit from the Rugby World Cup. Fiji squeezed past the Wallabies to reach the quarterfinals despite a shock defeat to Portugal. The two-time world champions were knocked out, even though Fiji crashed to the upset 24-23 defeat to Portugal, who enjoyed a maiden World Cup victory. But the result still meant that Australia finished third in Pool C level on 11 points with Fiji, who advanced after beating the Wallabies earlier in the tournament. And it was that game, I guess, that has been the demise of Australia. Now, some of the Australian newspapers have been pretty harsh on them this morning. The Australian and the Daily Telegraph both described Fiji's narrow defeat as the cruelest way possible for the Wallabies to bow out of the World Cup. Well, you know what, Australia, things come around and go around, you know, in circles, I guess, well, that's how things would go around. I'd just like to remind Australians um, of the system that they had in 1992 in the Cricket World Cup when South Africa were knocked out because of Kerry Packer, who wanted his news bulletin to be on time at 10 o'clock, and South Africa had to score 22 runs of one delivery. So Australia, nah, 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 nah. Anyway, um, the Australian sports website, The Raw, branded the Wallabies World Cup campaign a slow-motion car crash that spiralled out of control as the historic first pool exit was confirmed. Very much uh, true, according to that website. Australia's elimination also adds pressure on their head coach, Eddie Jones. Former Wallabies lock Peter Fitzsimmons and Rugby Australia took a risk in sacking New Zealand Dave Rennie as head coach at the beginning of the year, bringing back Jones, who coached Australia, to the 2003 Rugby World Cup final. The gamble has failed, and so have the Wallabies. Now, Rugby Australia are going to have a post-World Cup review into the stewardship of Jones. He's lost seven of the nine games in charge. Now, former Wallaby centre Tim Horan said the board should stick with Jones. He said, just let the emotion get out of the place in the next two or three weeks. And I, I guess that's right. I mean, you know, you can't always blame the coach. I know he made some weird selections in the team that he took with him. But uh, everybody knows how good a coach Eddie Jones is. He, of course, uh, assisted Jake White in South Africa's World Cup win in 2007. He was, for I think the shortest period of time, the Stormers coach before he got the job for England. He didn't do too badly for England. And then towards the end, uh, he seemed to have lost the dressing room and he moved on to Australia. And as I say, I still think he is a very good coach. So maybe you shouldn't um, be blaming the coach for everything. Perhaps the players should stand up. The rugby union in Australia also uh, need to take some blame. Remember, of course, that uh, they, along with New Zealand, uh, approved their uh, Super Rugby uh, tournament that involved the South African franchises, eliminated them, sent them packing, pretty much, and then Australia versus New Zealand in terms of their competitions. The strength versus strength issue, again, you've also got the situation in Australia where the Rugby League is really big and huge amounts of money in Rugby League. So uh, Australia will have to rebuild. 
one thing you can be sure of, and that is that Australia will not lie down and die. They will most definitely get back up. They will do the best they possibly can going forward. And uh, then, of course, they will be back. Australia will be back. There's no doubt in my mind that they will be. So what does that mean? Let's go through the results of the weekend for you. And uh, it started off on Friday evening with a comprehensive victory by the French against the Italians. For one second before the game started, people thought maybe the Italians had a chance. And if they did pull off a miracle, they would, of course, have qualified. And the whole situation might have been different in that group. Be that as it may, the French were just far too good for the Italians. They beat them by 60 points to seven. You know, you can't come out and play France at their game. France play open running rugby, and right from the outset were just superb, were the French. Then the other games, um, let's start with the first game on Saturday afternoon, where Wales played Georgia, comprehensive victory for the Welsh, by 43 points to 19. Then Samoa almost pulled off a shock on Saturday, England eventually beating them by 18 points to 17. England rugby Pretty much, if you think about it, left in disarray by Eddie Jones, who then took his bad luck to the Australians. And then the game in the evening, which everybody thought was going to be a close affair. There were even people talking about the game being contrived and ways to knock South Africa out of the World Cup. Well, it was all a load of nonsense. The Irish beat the Scots 36-14. In fact, um, at one stage, uh, Ireland were leading 36-0. Scotland did score two late tries, consolation tries. I might add, but Ireland 36, Scotland 14. Ireland through as uh, winners of the group. And then yesterday, Japan and Argentina, how the Japanese put up a show. My goodness, they did absolutely everything except win. And they're going to still be a force to be reckoned with going forward. A couple of South Africans, a few Fijians, New Zealanders. They are Japanese player in that Japanese side. Argentina coming out, eventual winners by 39 points to 27. But it was much, much closer than that. Tonga, completely comprehensive victory over Romania by 45 points to 24. And then the absolute shock of the tournament so far, and that was Portugal's one-point victory over Fiji. But that one point was good enough for the Fijians to go through to the next round. It is the very first time that Portugal have won a game at the Rugby World Cup. They came oh so close against Georgia. They uh, had a kick at goal in the final seconds of that game to uh, win it, but they ended up drawing with Georgia 18. Or And then yesterday they came out victorious. What an amazing performance by the Portuguese. They will be celebrating. Let's remember, this is not a rugby-playing country. It's not a rugby-mad country. It's a football-mad country. It's, of course, the country where Ronaldo comes from. And, uh, well, unbelievable. Unbelievable to beat Fiji by 24 points to 23. So where does that leave us in terms of the Rugby World Cup? Well, we now wait for this weekend's fixtures, of which there are four. The quarterfinals, two on Saturday and two on Sunday. The first one um, is one that you can't really call um, because neither side have really performed, but by virtue of the fact that they've been in a side of the draw that is most definitely much easier than the other half, Wales play Argentina at 5 o'clock and Ireland play New Zealand. That's going to be a massive, massive game. The Irish have never got past the quarterfinals of a World Cup. They are the number one team in the world, but you cannot 
write out the All Blacks. But the Irish defence against Scotland was magnificent. How it will be against New Zealand, I can't see it being any different. That is going to be a humdinger of a game. And then the other quarterfinals on Sunday at 5 o'clock, England play Fiji. That again is after Fiji's lost to Portugal, you might think that the Fijians don't really have a chance against England, but they've beaten them before. And then the last game decide the final semi-final berth, France against South Africa. Now, when you look at the weekend coming up and you think of those two games, Ireland, New Zealand, France against the Springboks, either of those two games could easily be a World Cup final. And it's just such a pity that those four teams, two of them, are going to be eliminated in the quarterfinals. But what it does mean for those two sides is, or those four sides, the two which go through, is that they can only then again meet in the final. So they will either play Wales-Argentina, the winners of Ireland-New Zealand, and the winners of France-South Africa, play England or Fiji. So I am almost certain the final will be contested between one of the four teams being Ireland, New Zealand, France or the Springboks. I'm convinced that two of those four will make it through to the final from a South African point of view. Obviously, we hope it's going to be the Springboks. Okay, let's move our attention now to Formula One motor racing and congratulations once again, three in a row now, Max Verstappen. He was crowned as Formula One driver's champion when he uh, was involved in the sprint race, which was won by Oscar Piastri. But Verstappen is a triple Formula One world champion after not only dominating qualifying, dominating the race as well. An incredible 14th win of the season for the Red Bull driver. It was quite superb the way he went about his business. Um, And even though he won the race, of course, he said he just really wanted to get onto the podium as a winner of the sprint or the main race, which he did in the main race, but not in the sprint race. But he will have to wait until December before he can put his hands around that Formula One champions trophy. Formula One differs from other sports like football or tennis in handing out their silverware at a formal award ceremony rather than at the actual moment of triumph and as part of the immediate show. This year's FIA Gala Prize giving will take place in Baku on the 8th of December with the final race of the season in Abu Dhabi on the 26th of November. He said, that's okay. They look the same. He's got two at home. (laughs) Unbelievable. The 26-year-old has won 48 Grand Prix so far, making him the fifth most successful Formula One driver of all time in terms of race wins. He has plenty of other trophies in his collection. So I know he doesn't race for trophies. I know he doesn't race for the money. Well, I guess he does race for the money. But at the end of the day, he races for the championship. And he is the Formula One Drivers' Championship with a whole host of races still to go. As I say, finished runner-up in the 19-lap sprint race that clinched the title. His sole rival and teammate, Sergio Perez, crashed out of the race. There's no podium ceremony for the sprint race. So as not to take the luster away from the main event on a Sunday when the top three drivers are handed their trophies and they were after a dramatic race because of restrictions that were placed on the cars the fia because of problems with the heat as well as problems with the tires they made sure that the teams had to put after 18 laps on any set of tires so it did mean that there was a minimum of three stops in the race which I guess might be something they could consider because it really did make it pretty exciting, I would admit. 
And then the uh, track limits that caused such havoc during qualifying, I mean, nearly was a front row of the two McLarens. It turned out that they started sixth and tenth. They did finish second and third behind Max, who qualified as the fastest. But the amazing conditions heat-wise, humidity-wise, was something that the drivers, most of them, couldn't handle. American Logan Sargent had to retire after 40 laps, complaining he felt too sick to continue. He suffered dehydration and vomited in his helmet. I know that sounds terrible. He wasn't the only driver that that happened to. A whole lot of drivers felt unwell through the course of the race and had to go to the medical center after a grueling race, and the drivers declared that it was the toughest physical test of their entire career. Even Max Verstappen, Oscar Piastri, and Lando Norris, the first three drivers, you could see they were still okay, but uh, Piastri in the driver's room after the race actually lay on the floor. He was so tired. But next year, it'll be six weeks later, the race in Qatar. So maybe the uh, temperatures will be less. And if you think about it, can you imagine if they raced during the day? I mean, this was a night race. If they raced during the day, how much more dangerous it might have been for the drivers. And the thing that you need to remember is that these guys are doing 300 plus kilometers an hour. So any lapse in concentration can be not only deadly, can be fatal for not only themselves, but also for the other cars around them. Now, talking about the other cars around them, the first time ever that I can remember Lewis Hamilton shouldering the blame for a collision. It was a first corner collision with his teammate, George Russell. He said that his Mercedes teammate had shunted him out. That's what he said earlier, but then he admitted after the pair came together on the opening lap of a race that could have ended with a double podium after Russell qualified on the front row with Hamilton third, I got taken out by my own teammate, seven-time Formula One champion Hamilton, told his race engineer over the radio after ending up in the gravel with only three wheels left on his car. An early incident between the McLaren drivers saw Hamilton retiring from the race. In the heat of the moment, it was frustrating because I felt the tap from the rear, but don't think George had anywhere to go. It was an unfortunate scenario. I'm happy to take responsibility because that is my role. I don't feel like it was George's fault. I hope the two of them weren't on the same aeroplane going home last night because stewards did look at the incident, decided no driver was wholly at fault and took no further action. Hamilton assured reporters the relationship between them was not broken. The incident was reminiscent of the 2016 season when Hamilton and now retired teammate Nico Rosberg clashed in a frosty title duel that the German ultimately won. Rosberg, on the other hand, who was on Sky Sports television, said it was all on Lewis. Hamilton had complained before the start that he was a sitting duck on soft tyres but he didn't get far enough to find out. So Lewis Hamilton crashed out, and after first blaming his teammate, he's now taken those words back and said that it was his fault. Right, let's talk local football, if we can, for a moment. And uh, Sundowns, who seem to have been winning everything in South Africa, well, they learnt that they can't have every single title, just like Manchester City. We'll talk about them in a moment. Um, as the Pirates goalkeeper was the hero of the day, as he led his club to a penalty shootout win over Mamelodi Sundowns in the MTN8 final at the Moses Mabila Stadium in Durban. The 
two heavyweights played out a goalless draw over 120 minutes before a penalty shootout provided the platform for the goalkeeper to write his name into Buccaneer legends, saving three kicks from Bongani Zungu, Junior Mendiata, and Tebojo Mokwena. He then teed up Karim Kemvudi to score the decisive kick and hand the Soweto club a 3-1 triumph. Pirates successfully defended the MTN8 title they won last year and lifted the trophy for a 12th time. While sundowns will reflect not only on their inability to score from the spot in the shootout, but also the many scoring opportunities they spurned through two-plus hours of football. And one of the reasons I'm bringing this information to you is because I think it is testament to the Premier League in South Africa and to the national team. They just can't score goals. And when you play football, the number one objective is to score goals. It's not to defend. um, And it's not to have somebody like Benny McCarthy, who's South Africa's leading goal scorer, with a paltry number of goals when you compare it to other teams around the world. And when you look at the results in the Premier League this weekend, which is where we are going to go to now, you will see why football in England is not only so well supported, but the fact that they in Europe are scoring goals more and more so. I know the Italians and the Spanish don't necessarily score as many goals as they do in the Premier League. And yes, I know you might be saying, yes, but England have not won the World Cup since 1966. Well, you know what? At least England qualify for the World Cup and they even get as far as the semi-finals. South Africa, on the other hand, they don't qualify for anything anymore because they don't score goals. Now, what is the reason for that? I have absolutely no idea. And it's something that we will investigate for you on from the boardroom to the locker room. Going forward, we will get uh, one of South Africa's top commentators onto the show in the next couple of weeks for you and find out what he thinks of why South African football just doesn't have the same number of goals as games around the world. It's not like we're the best defenders in the world. I just think that we don't play this kind of football, the brand of football, where it's at a high pace. You watch South African football and the ball goes out of play and they take a whole long time to pick the ball up. They throw the ball in. They push it around slowly. They play in the back. They build up slowly. There's no pace in the game. There's no pace. There's no pace in the final third of the field. But that's just my opinion. We will get that for you from the boardroom to the locker room and make that uh, as best public knowledge what we think and what he thinks of why South African football is in the state that it's in at the moment in terms of scoring goals. Now, onto the Premier League we go, and it's almost unthinkable. Three games they've lost. Who? Manchester City. What? Yep, they were knocked out of the Carabao Cup. They were beaten in the Champions League, and they've now been beaten a couple of times in the Premier League. And Mikel Arteta's Arsenal broke a significant barrier in their bid to win the Premier League. Gabriel Martinelli's late goal sealed a 1-0 victory over Manchester City at the Emirates Stadium yesterday. Arteta's side had lost their previous 12 meetings, 12 meetings, with Manchester City before Martinelli's 86th minute strike deflected of Nathan Ake to spark wild celebrations, not just at the Emirates Stadium, but around the world, not only from Arsenal fans, I can tell you, but also from fans of all the other teams by Man City, because everybody's trying to beat Manchester City and nobody can. It's the first time since December 2015 that Arsenal could savour a victory over City and they embraced the moment amid jubilant scenes on the pitch and amongst their 60,000 sellout crowd. Arsenal have beaten City on penalties in the Community Shield at Wembley in August, a success they celebrated with almost as much vigour as yesterday's win. 
But this was far more important, coming not only in a glorified friendly, but in the red-hot atmosphere of a crucial clash between the champions and their closest rivals last season. So comparing that to the Community Shield, of course, this game meant everything, everything. It didn't rock it up with the Premier League, though. That belongs to their neighbours, Spurs, who are going along quietly, um, but getting results. Beat Liverpool last week, good results this week again, and now they are top of the table. So uh, very, very, very interesting indeed. Now, that wasn't the only game of the weekend. Um, There was a, a very interesting match at Old Trafford. Because up to and including a few minutes from the end of the game, it looked as though perhaps Eric Ten Hag, Monday morning or even Sunday morning, might have been looking for another job. Well, he made what he will say is the best substitution of his career um, because it was a sensational comeback for style, and hopefully for Manchester United fans, it will be the turning point of the season as they came from a goal to nil down after a woeful start to the season to secure a 2-1 victory, both goals coming in stoppage time, both by the substitute Scott McTominay. The 20-time top-flight champions went into the game off the back of a 3-2 home loss to Galatasaray in the Champions League and a 1-0 defeat to Crystal Palace in the Premier League. But United's defensive frailties were exposed when Casemiro gave the ball away, Victor Lindelof failed to clear, Brentford's midfield Matthias Jensen slotted the ball under the body of the new goalkeeper Andre Onana, who should have saved it comfortably. He, just like David De Gea, has had a terrible start to his Manchester United career. However, McTominay came in a couple of minutes before the end of the game, and in typical Alex Ferguson days style of Manchester United play, they scored two goals to take victory and win by two goals to one, and I guess saved the bacon, saved his job most definitely, because uh, it is a really bad start to the Premier League for Manchester United. Let's just have a look then, shall we, at the other result from the weekend. A lot of draws yesterday. Besides the Arsenal late 1-0 score against Man City, it was draws for all the other matches on Sunday. Wolves and Villa drew 1-0. West Ham and Newcastle drew 2-0. And Brighton and Liverpool drew 2-0. Brighton coming back from a couple of defeats in the Premier League. Well, they did exceptionally well to play against Liverpool and secure a 2-0 draw. Although... They should have most definitely won the game in the dying moments. They really were uh, in a very, very good position, and uh, they should have definitely scored should the uh, the home side, as I say, in the dying seconds of the game. They didn't. Lewis Dunk should most definitely have put the ball in the back of the net. He had an opportunity, as did Joe Gomez. He had a chance. It was all over the place in the end. But at the end of the day, a two-all result for Liverpool. And then the results on Saturday, Crystal Palace and Nottingham Forest drew nil-nil. Game with lots of chances, but no goals. Forest will be happy with a draw. They pick up a point away from home. Crystal Palace would have wanted a win. Burnley are really struggling. They lost at home to Chelsea. Chelsea put four 
four goals in the back of the net. That's the best result Chelsea have had in an awful long time. I've mentioned United. Man United beat Brentford by two goals to one. Fulham beat Sheffield United 3-1. Everton could win at home against Bournemouth. Six-point swing there. A 3-0 victory. And then Luton Town at home at Kettleworth Road. They were beaten by Tottenham Hotspur. Which brings me to the Premier League table. And at the top of that table, Tottenham Hotspur. Right below them, Arsenal. Third, Manchester City. And then Liverpool, Aston Villa and Brighton. But really, I can't remember when last Manchester City or Arsenal, or for that matter, the seasons ago, Liverpool, weren't top of the Premier League. So Spurs, top of the table, 20 points. They are unbeaten. They've had six wins and two draws, as have Arsenal. They just have a better goals for as opposed to goals against, which means the goal difference of 10. Both teams identical, 20 points, goal difference of 10 for each of them. And Spurs top of the table, Arsenal in second. Manchester City have now lost two games in the Premier League in just eight games. Six wins and two losses, unheard of for Manchester City. They have 18 points and then Liverpool 17, Aston Villa 16, along with Brighton in fifth and sixth place. West Ham 14 with a draw at the weekend against Newcastle, who have 13. Palace in ninth place with 12, along with Manchester United. That is the top half of the table. Chelsea lead the bottom half on uh, 11 points from their eight games. They are in 11th place. And then bottom of the table, Sheffield United have one point. Bournemouth have three points, Burnley have four, as do Luton Town. Everton are just pulling away with seven points, along with Brentford. Wolves have eight, and Nottingham Forest in 13th place have ninth, have nine points. They will be delighted in terms of how the season's gone so far for them. Two wins, three draws, three losses. They have nine points, and if they continue at this rate, they shouldn't be worrying about relegation at the end of the season. What's to come this week for the Premier League teams? Well, Saturday, mark this down in your diary. The 21st of October is the next time that there are matches. Liverpool versus Everton. Brighton against Burnley. Newcastle against Palace. Bournemouth against Wolves. Manchester City against Brighton. Nottingham Forest play Luton Town. Big six-point swing there. London Derby. Chelsea against Arsenal. Sheffield United against Manchester United. And then on Sunday, the 22nd of October, Villa against West Ham. And Spurs play Fulham in a London Derby on the 23rd of October. So that is the schedule with regards to the uh, matches in two weeks' time. The reason, of course, for that is a break in the season with regards to uh, football in the in England and uh, the uh, of course is an opportunity for some of the teams to get themselves uh, a little break maybe a little fitness whatever um, and see how things go so that is the action from the Premier League and uh, it of course as I say continues in two weeks time of that big clash Liverpool against Everton or should I say Everton against Liverpool and that of course is a big clash always 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 with regards to the season okay so uh, attention now will focus on the Cricket World Cup another yes another 
loss for Australia. Now, you must remember that Australia are certainly one of the teams that can boast having the best record in Cricket World Cups. They've won it on a number of occasions, but they were comprehensively beaten in a low-scoring game um, yesterday. Now, a couple of mistakes. Mitchell Marsh has no illusions. At home, he is uh, being touted as useless. His detractors have more ammunition after an absolute clangor. Um, four years after famously lamenting most of Australia hate, the 31-year-old appeared to have endeared himself with Australian fans with his red-hot form recently. He was even tipped to be a permanent Australian captain after impressing in that role in their white ball tour to South Africa. Expectations were naturally high heading into the match against the World Cup hosts, but everything that could go wrong did for him. Marsh was the first Australian wicket to fall after a six-ball duck. Berikoli taking a magnificent catch at slip. Um, and then after being bundled out for a below par 199, Australia refused to throw in the towel. Mitchell Stark and Josh Hazelwood bowled brilliantly to start with. For the first time in an ODI, three of India's top four batters fell for a Hazelwood was not done yet. Kohli was on 12 when he mistimed his pull shot. The ball ballooned up much to the horror of the full house venue. Marsh sprinted in, fixed his eyes on the ball, but by the time he reached it, he was distracted by Alex Carey, who was approaching from the other side, and he dropped it. A relieved Cody went on to make 85, forging a match-winning 165-run partnership with K.L. Rahul, who made 97 not out India, winning against Australia. Earlier in the weekend, one involving South Africa, and what a comprehensive victory for the Proteas. They were in imperious form, thanks mainly to Aidan Markram, who smashed the record for the fastest 100. And it was not a smash-bang smack it around the park. It was beautifully crafted with pure cricket shots by Markram. He broke the record, scoring his 100 in 49 balls. He ended up with 106 or 54 deliveries, 14 fours and three glorious sixes. And he batted brilliantly in an innings in which South Africa scored three tons. Quinton de Kock got 100 and the very next ball got himself out. Rassi van der Dissen, a very calculated 108. And then Heinrich Klaassen's 32 of 20. David Miller's 39 of 21. And even Marco Janssen smacked it around 12 of 7. South Africa ending up with 428. Magnificent performance by South Africa. Then they came into bowl and a little disappointing the way South Africa bowled. And that bowled them out for 326. But at the end of the day, South Africa should have completely annihilated them. When you consider they were 150 for five after 20 overs, South Africa did let them slip a little bit. 326. Best of the bowlers, two wickets apiece for Janssen, Rabada and Maharaj. Three for Gerald Kutsia and a wicket for Lungasani, Lungi and Gidi. Sri Lanka 326 all out. In the other game at the weekend, it was victory for Bangladesh by six wickets. They restricted Afghanistan to 156 all out in 37 overs, and then they knocked the runs off. Did Bangladesh in 34 overs, scoring those 158 runs that they needed for victory.
So as far as the cricket will be, let's have a look now at the uh, tables. Uh, after everyone's played one match, New Zealand topped the board due to a net run rate of 2.149. South Africa second with a net run rate of 2.04. And that is most definitely going to play a factor come the end of this tournament. Pakistan, who were victorious as well, they beat the Netherlands. They are there with two points and a net run rate of 1.62. Bangladesh, the other team that won along with India. Those five teams each have two points, but New Zealand topped the log due to their run rate. South Africa are second. Bottom of the table, England, who of course got hammered by New Zealand in the opening game. Sri Lanka, who got hammered by South Africa, the Netherlands, Afghanistan, and Australia, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Those teams' net run rate is what counts there. Fixtures for the week, of course, 45 matches to be played in total. By the time this program is over, six matches, seven match tomorrow, England-Bangladesh, followed by Pakistan-Sri Lanka. Big clash there for Sri Lanka in particular. And then on Wednesday, it's India against Afghanistan. Thursday, Australia versus South Africa. Now, South Africa could pretty much put Australia on the back foot if they're able to win that one, because they would have won two and Australia would have lost two. And then Friday the 13th, New Zealand play Bangladesh. And then on Saturday, it is the biggest clash in cricket. India versus Pakistan. That is match 12 of the Cricket World Cup, followed on Sunday by England against Afghanistan, and then on Monday, Australia against Sri Lanka. Previous head-to-head meetings in the last while, India beat Pakistan by 228 runs the last time they played. The other game was washed out in the Asia Cup. Um, but India's record against uh, Pakistan is a good one. It is the kind of clash that every single person in the cricketing world will have their eyes on. I can tell you it's being played at the Sardar Patel Stadium, and uh, it is a big one. It is uh, one of the uh, biggest stadiums in the uh, world, the Sardar Patel Stadium. In Ahmedabad, that stadium holds 132,000. So you can imagine what it's going to be like. You're not going to be able to hear yourself think. It's going to be a cracker jack of a match, which we will preview along with all the other major sporting activities that will take place this coming weekend. Don't forget to join us tomorrow evening. We'll be talking show jumping. Uh, We will have a couple of guests on the show after the derby that was completed last week. And we'll be talking to the winner. We'll also be talking to one of the organizers. That, of course, coming up tomorrow evening on From the Boardroom to the Locker Room. But until then, as always, be nice to each other and bye for now.